0: You're listening to the Domecast,
1: where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics.
0: Welcome to another edition of the Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer, taking my first spin in the host chair, so bear with me, please. And uh, with me we have Lynn Bonner of the News and Observer. Well, everybody's from the News and Observer. Lynn Bonner, Will Doran, Colin Campbell, Brian Anderson. And Craig Jarvis. We've got a big crowd here today. Uh, Today, this week, there was a lot of action at the legislature, including our first uh, veto of the year, Uh, but we're going to focus on the campaign. We had uh, a big election Tuesday, even though hardly anybody showed up for it. Uh, And the biggest, the marquee race in the triangle was the second district. Uh, So everybody can be uh, Excited that they no longer have to turn on their TV and uh, Hear about how terrible Renee Elmers and George holding are Uh, Lynn do you want to talk about uh, what happened in the second district race?
2: Sure Uh, George holding um, defeated Renee Elmers uh, By a huge margin. I think it was uh, almost uh, 30 percentage points and uh, Elmers was fighting to stay at a third place um, a big uh, turnaround for um, uh, a congresswoman who uh, ran as a Tea Party favorite back in 2010, defeated uh, an incumbent incumbent Democrat uh, who had been in office for a long time, and uh, was uh, you know made national news because she was the first Republican incumbent to lose. And uh, because um, just a couple of days before she was endorsed by um, Donald Trump, uh, who recorded a robocall for her. So it was, uh, it, it you know, it was uh, a big message to Elmers um, that she was no longer considered um, conservative enough to represent that district.
0: Did Trump's endorsement have much to do with it or were there other things at work here?
2: It's hard to know um, whether... Trump had any impact at all you know there was no polling and for uh, some of the folks that i talked to outside the polls they don't even remember getting a robocall from from trump um i wonder how effective those are now um especially since uh the endorsement came so close to election day and i don't know you know with uh with cell phones now do people even get robocalls so um it, uh, it's unknown, and there were a lot of other factors involved. Um, she, there, she had a lot of um, outside conservative groups working against her, um, including uh, anti-abortion groups and some of these con- uh, conservative-slash-libertarian uh, groups who did not like her uh, votes on budget compromise bills and uh, some issues as obscure as the export-import bank, um, but uh, she had one, uh, $1.2 million in outside money focused against her um, in uh, television ads, radio ads, digital, digital ads, people against her uh, going door-to-door in the district, so it was um, much more than she could overcome.
0: And I guess the map didn't help either. She also got redistricted out of her old district into one that looked a lot more like George Holdings' old district.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, uh, Brian, you talked to some uh, experts about whether uh, there was a Trump effect in that race. Uh, What did they have to say?
3: Yeah, uh, Well, first, I I think just from talking to different experts, uh, professors in political science from Duke University, uh, and several other colleges, it seemed that Trump really didn't have much of an impact on this, uh, and it seemed to be a very dominant redistricting issue. I mean, that really did uh, Renee Elmer's in. Um, She's been touting several different times during the campaign uh, that George Holding isn't representing uh, the new district, too, uh, because he's an outsider, which isn't really necessarily all that accurate. But as far as Mr. Trump goes, that seemed to have a limited effect at best. Uh, it didn't really seem to hurt Renee Elmers, and it definitely wasn't the reason why she lost by any means.
0: Uh, it was just not really much of a factor. And uh, you were at her uh what turned out to not be a victory party uh, on Tuesday. How did she seem afterward?
3: Well, uh, she seemed just how she seemed throughout the course of this campaign. It's been a very aggressive, tough-fought campaign on both sides. And as Lynn talked about, a lot of money has been spent to attack Congresswoman Elmers. uh, And Congresswoman Elmers fought back on that. Uh, There were a couple interesting moments in it. Uh, One of the ones that stood out to me was uh, with regard to her talking about what her next move was, and she had this very interesting quote she said during her uh, speech after she found out she lost. She said, George Holdings won. He's won by a large margin, but we'll move on from here, and what I want to say is I believe that when God closes a door somewhere, he opens a window, and that's where we're going to be headed. (laughs) So a little bit of uh, a slip of the tongue right there, Perhaps. Um, but the larger issue, and I think the larger um, point of reflection after looking at District 2 is her sentiments on um, Congressman Holding still. Usually in a speech like that, you want to say, I appreciate a tough fought race, and you kind of hear that typical jargon. Uh, but that wasn't the case. She said that she respects uh, Holding for being elected. And then she said he's not a doer, and he, she fears for the people of district, too. So certainly not an optimistic or congratulatory message. And then she said that she's going to do everything she can to make sure he does a good job representing the people of his district, even though he doesn't live in the district. So clearly some hostility still carrying over.
0: Yeah, that was one of her uh, attack lines. Uh, Will, what did you looked into whether uh, Holding is really a, a sort of a stranger to his district. Uh, what, what did you find out?
4: yeah um it it's definitely true he doesn't live in the district he's about six or seven miles outside the boundaries he lives in uh here in raleigh near the five points area which is uh, actually in david price's uh, fourth district that also includes chapel hill and hillsborough um, but with the way that the lines were redrawn uh, most of this new district is actually uh, land that holding represented beforehand when he was representing the 13th um and and uh only actually a very small portion of the district um of, of what you know the people who were voting in the second district were people that Elmer's currently represented so holding had a little bit of a built-in advantage there with um a lot of his constituents um compared to elmer's so even though he doesn't live in the district uh he had a lot of you know his previous backers who could go to the polls for him all
0: right well and the one thing about this race is uh, it kept making me hungry the first there was the uh cheese tortellini ad the famous uh attack on holding for his uh uh high-flying uh ways and and getting uh, airline meals that apparently elmers Expensive thought were cuisine. yeah <laughs> elmers <laughs> thought were uh, a little hoity-toity uh and then uh, and then food came up again on the final day of the uh campaign when uh, Renee Elmers went to vote. Uh, Lynn, what, what happened there?
2: Well, she found uh, someone who's now, uh, vo- was volunteering for George Holding, who used to volunteer for her, and uh, I guess shouted across the parking lot that she seemed to be hitting the pork barbecue a little hard. Uh, a, uh, a, a reference to um, the women's weight. Um, and uh, then in a later interview said, yes, that's what she was talking about. Um, Later, a uh, uh, a television reporter interviewed the the volunteer and uh, who said that um, uh, Elmer's was had turned into, I think, a professional mean girl or, or something like that. Mean so, girl on steroids. I gor- think. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mean go- girl on steroids, <laughs> uh, which uh, sort of uh, sort of um, points to how bitter this uh, race was between two people who. Um, were in the same delegation uh, so um, yeah it was uh, something interesting for, for election day for sure and then um, holding at his victory party uh, made a point of talking about how uh, what a good person this this woman was who, who Renee singled out in the parking lot so it uh, it resonated through the entire day on election day
0: and we'll uh, try to play that clip here on the uh, from election day of Renee Elmer's uh, heading to the polls, uh, and then we'll be right back to talk about other races. <laughs> a too,
5: she I heard when you pulled up, the you said to, to the woman that
4: she's gained some weight. Are
5: she's you put on, yeah,
2: or? she's put on a little Are weight. You with her uh, yeah, I, I
3: know her. She um, she's actually, I think she lives in Lillington, and she's part of the Republican yes. Party. Sure.
0: And we're back with the Domecast. This Jordan Schrader. Um, the big race uh, statewide and the only statewide race on Tuesday was the state Supreme Court. And a uh, really important race winnowing down the... Uh, candidates to two for the November election that will uh, essentially decide the partisan makeup of the Supreme Court, even though this is a nonpartisan race. Uh, Mike Morgan and uh, the incumbent Bob Edmonds advanced in a a race that originally was not even supposed to take place. It was uh, going to be a retention election until uh, a court struck that down, which essentially means Edmonds would have been on the ballot for a a yes or no, uh, and only later could they have uh, had other candidates. Um, but even though it was an important race, uh not a whole lot of people turned out uh will what did the the turnout numbers look like, and how did that stack up with uh, past races
4: yeah uh turnout was in the single digits uh below eight percent it was seven point something um and that is just i mean obviously very very low um even when you look at uh you know some other You know low interest elections in previous years there's been a few runoffs that have only gotten around you know two to four percent which is you know almost you know imperceptible um but even the last time that all of these congressional primaries were happening um it was um around 16 percent turnout so about double what this one was and um really one of the most significant things about that low turnout is you know uh because the a lot of the districts are so, uh, you know, districted in such a way to really favor one party, uh, you know, some are in favor of Republicans, others are in favor of Democrats, the primaries really decide a lot of the races. They're more competitive than the general election will be. So, you know, you had people, you know, who essentially won a seat in Congress. You know, they still obviously have to compete in the general election, but assuming that they win, you know, with just... A few thousand votes, you know. Uh, in some cases, uh, you know, four digits. So um, yeah, it it was uh it was very low and you know, one of one of really the lowest in recent years, except for a handful of runoff elections.
0: Uh, and of course, we, the reason we had this election at a weird time of year in June uh, is because of a court decision that struck down. Uh, the current congressional districts and required the legislature to redraw them and have a new election. Uh, redistricting is something that's going to uh, continue to be uh, on the agenda for uh, some groups who think we should have a nonpartisan process. Uh, they're not satisfied with the, uh, the new Congressional districts, or for that matter legislative districts that we have now, and uh, they'd like to see some kind of uh, independent commission or or more data-driven way of drawing the districts. Uh, I went over to uh, where a a number of judges were uh, drawing what these districts could look like if we were to have a a less partisan kind of redistricting, and I talked to uh, former Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr a little bit about what they're trying to achieve. Uh, so let's listen to a little bit of audio right now uh, from uh, that interview.
5: Uh, well, I'm Bob Orr, and I'm a retired justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Retired in 2004, but I'm still practicing law. I'm of counsel with the Campbell Shatley Firm in Asheville, and am interested in redistricting. Former classmate of Tom Ross, and so was pleased when Tom asked me, to be a part of this group, uh, to work on the redistricting, the independent redistricting commission concept.
0: And what's the goal? What are you trying to achieve with these
5: uh, these maps? Well, I think the idea is to see what would they look like if we didn't have political considerations driving the decision-making. And there, there have been efforts in the past to have some sort of independent redistricting commission that would eliminate the the partisan consideration of whichever party might be in control. And so I think part of this is to increase public awareness that you can draw uh, reasonable uh, legal maps in in a way that eliminate, to a large extent, any any, uh, partisan consideration.
0: And why have nonpartisan redistricting? Why is that a goal? Why not uh, the voters selected, the legislators they elected, they put one party in control, to the victor goes the spoils, right? Uh,
5: that's true. <laughs> As the Republicans said, after 140 years of not being able to control the redistricting process, they ought to be able to do it uh, in this cycle. But I, I think uh, two important reasons. One, good government dictates less partisan consideration. And secondly, with the sophistication of computer technology, the ability to draw and construct districts, whether at the legislative or congressional level, that guarantee one party uh, a win in in that district is, is it really enhances the bad government uh, construct of trying to uh, cook the book so that you make sure your party has, has control. And so uh, in, in the old days when you had to take a uh, just a plain old paper map and sit down with some demographic material and try and draw districts uh, you know, you can only do that to a certain extent. Now, if you want a district that's that's 15% Methodist uh, with uh, 42% registered Republican with 61% white males with, uh, you know, you just figure the construct. And with a computer and with the demographic information that's programmed into it, you can draw any kind of district to uh, favor yourself or your party as the case might be
0: All right and uh, as I said, the uh, all new districts, so people had uh, a whole lot of candidates that they didn't necessarily know much about. Uh, people were in didn't necessarily know what district they're in, um, but it made for a lot of interesting races. Um, Craig, what did you take away from uh, the some of the congressional races that were on the ballot? Tuesday. What were some of the the interesting outcomes that uh, we saw?
6: Well, I guess uh, just kind of running through the results, Walter Jones won one more time out in District 3 uh, by a very comfortable margin. Uh, What was the new uh, District 12, which was basically Mecklenburg County, was won by Alma Adams, uh, retaining her hold on District 12 uh, over a pretty sizable uh, bunch of candidates. Um, of course, the most amazing race from the beginning was the 13th district, where there were 22 candidates, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, um, we had a obscure gun range, shooting range, gun shop owner. Uh, what's his name? Rudd. Ted Bud. Bud. Ted yeah. Bud. See, I don't even know his name. Uh, <laughs> who was backed by a prominent. Uh, uh, Pack so um, he he was the surprise vote getter over several uh, legislators who were state legislators who were also in the mix. So you know it didn't really make a, any difference in terms of uh, what's likely to happen in November. I would say in terms of turning over party, uh, you know the ten to three Republican uh, majority. But uh, but th- those were the those were, I guess were the highlights. Uh, Pittinger is uh, in, is in a probable recount. I guess down in what district is that? Uh, Ninth district. Yeah. yeah. So, uh,
0: he won by about 140 yeah. votes, something like that.
6: So, yeah. So those were the highlights, I guess.
0: Yeah. It seemed like uh, uh, with such low turnout, uh, groups that wanted to sway the outcome had a lot, a little more uh, power. We saw that maybe in the second. Definitely saw that in the 13th where the, the Club for Growth got mm-hmm. behind uh, uh, Ted Budd there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he won with, I think, about 6,000 and some votes. That's not the margin that's that's the total number of votes he received he and he's going to probably go to congress assuming he can right. get past whatever democrat or or unaffiliated
6: yeah it's pretty astounding when you think of it like that a mere few handful of votes really to put somebody in congress but uh that's the i think the history of of these second primaries especially they they tend to get this one might have even done better than others in the past i'm not quite sure but i, I th- it's definitely a single digit kind of turnout but uh it's hard to drum up interest about these things.
0: And Colin, did anything stand out to you about Tuesday night's uh, results? Anything surprising?
1: Yeah. Well, it's was, it was interesting to see the uh, Craig touched on this, sort of the the failure of the the legislators pretty much across the board. The ones that ran, and this was something where the legislators really did themselves a favor from the get go when they scheduled these second these additional primaries. Uh, they wrote something into the law that allowed um, people to run for these new congressional districts while at the same time still running for another office, say, a legislative seat. So it was a no-risk run for a number of members of the legislature. There were four of them in that 13th district that had so many candidates. Um, I guess John Blust from the House, a member from Greensboro, came in second. So he didn't do too badly, but uh, several of his peers were fairly far down in the pack on that. Um, down in Mecklenburg County, uh, you had two um, legislators and one former legislator running against Alma Adams, uh, who was was being attacked for uh, whether or not she would actually move to Charlotte. The fact that she's originally from Greensboro and was trying to run in her newly drawn district that no longer came anywhere close to where her house had been. Uh, there was a, a, a TV station that did a stakeout of her, her house in Greensboro over Memorial Day weekend, found her. Pulling into her driveway, uh, the reporter tried to ask her questions. She drove away, uh, said she was she was having a bad day and didn't want to talk to reporters. But really, she she had indeed moved. She claimed to a townhouse uh, down in Charlotte. But at any rate, she had um, quite a bit of competition from folks who. Uh, were residents of the uh, the Charlotte area several of them legislators uh, former state senator Malcolm Graham came in second uh, and I don't think it came very close to uh, the vote total that Adams got and then further back in the pack from that was uh, representative uh, Trisha Cotham um, who is a current house member not running for re-election to that seat this year and then um, Carla Cunningham uh, who's also in the the state house and uh, I, I guess what that says to me is that the the public polling that we've seen Seen uh, about the popularity of the legislature in general um, that, that people just don't like their legislature. The legislature uh, is, is true because they didn't want to promote any of these people to Congress out of the um, six or seven that were, were
0: on the ballot on Tuesday. Yeah, usually you assume that uh, with this Low turnout with any election that name ID is just going to carry the day. So somebody yeah, and like that was, Julia Howard or somebody who's yeah. Brock and when I first
1: anything. yeah Andrew Brock was the one I was really watching in the thirteenth uh, district because uh, you know Senate seats uh, Senate districts obviously larger than House districts and pretty much all of Andrew Brock's uh, Senate district matches up with the new thirteenth. So when I saw those maps uh, a few months back, I thought all right, this is where Andrew Brock's going to run, and this is where his his buddies almost drew the district in a way that um, would be advantageous to him. And he he wasn't even in the top two or three, I don't think. I think the was third. The He came in uh, sixth, apparently, um, which was uh, pretty far down the pack, despite his uh, – yeah, I think he even got on TV with a, an ad that kind of reminded me of a pickup truck ad. It was, you know, Andrew Brock. He's a solid American family man who wants to keep Obama out of our bathrooms and um, – so that didn't seem to work for him for for whatever reason. Um, and what and about what, in the what guy. about
6: Julia Howard? I mean, she had all this real estate interest. Yes, yeah, so she's
1: a real estate agent, and the National Association of Realtors, I guess, jumped in on her behalf. But uh, how did she, she f- came in fourth?
6: Fourth, I think that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah
1: so not too too great for her either. And she also campaigned pretty heavily on. Uh, The fact that she was one of the the main sponsors of House Bill 2, which I don't know if that played into uh, how she fared in the election or not, but certainly she was hoping that uh, the Republican faithful would see that she had been out front on House Bill 2 and and want to support her for that reason.
6: Well, the good news oh, – go ahead, Craig. Well, I was just going to say on Adam's behalf, it's never a good day when you come home to see a TV crew in your in your driveway. <laughs> yeah,
0: she's kind of in a no-win situation because she's still supposed to be representing a district that right. includes Greensboro, and then she's got a campaign in the district that's yeah. Mecklenburg County. So uh, she has to kind of go back and forth, I guess. Yeah. Or- um, well, the good news for uh, the, the current legislators is that they uh, all had a free ride in this election in the sense that uh, – uh, I believe all of them are running again for, for re-election. Yeah, I think with the exception of
1: Cotham, uh they're all going to be on the ballot in November. And thanks to uh, gerrymandered districts, uh, they've got a real good chance of, uh, of keeping their seat uh, come November.
0: And uh, so then we, uh, we will be headed soon into the, into the general election. And Democrats are already trying to uh, tie uh, Governor McCrory to uh, Donald Trump. Uh, now that he's become the the presumptive Republican nominee. Uh, There was some talk about that this week. Uh, Colin, what what happened?
1: Yeah, so this was an interesting one. I'd noticed, um, you know, as we get closer at the national level to um, having, you know, formal nominees. Uh, Donald Trump pretty much clinched the Republican nomination a couple weeks back. Uh, This week was the week that Hillary Clinton was uh, identified as the the presumptive nominee on the Democratic side. Um, But we haven't heard much about those candidates from our our two gubernatorial candidates, Roy Cooper and and Pat McCrory. Uh, McCrory, up until this week, has not even said Trump's name. I think he still avoided saying Trump's name this week. Uh, Roy Cooper has not had much to say about Hillary Clinton. Uh, So I, I took the opportunity at the Council of State meeting where McCrory was answering some questions from reporters to ask him what he thought of, uh, of Donald Trump. He said, yes, he will be supporting him. Uh, and I asked him why. The answer was, I've said all along I was going to support the Republican nominee. And then he very quickly turned away from me and, and wanted to get out of there and take another question. Uh, so not a whole lot of uh, enthusiastic support from the governor for Donald Trump. Uh, I then asked the Cooper campaign about uh, Hillary Clinton. They said, yes, uh, you know, Mr. Cooper does plan to uh, support Hillary Clinton um, as the, the Democrat nominee.
0: And he'd been a little iffy on that, too, hadn't
1: Yeah, he? you know, he, he, uh, he had given an interview with, I think it was the Henderson, North Carolina newspaper recently, um, where he was saying, you know, he wanted the primary process to play out uh, before he Made any comments on that, and that was, I think, a week before uh, Hillary clinched the nomination. At that point, the point he said that I mean, nobody thought Bernie Sanders at that particular moment still had a chance. But I guess uh, Cooper didn't want to jump the gun and 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 go ahead and, and come out in support of Hillary. Uh, but once uh, we saw the the Trump comment from um, McCrory, uh, the Democrats were very quick to pounce in a matter of hours, uh, trying to tie uh, Governor McCrory to Trump's comments about the um, judge in the Trump University case. Uh, Trump, of course, uh, said that he thought because that guy is "quote Mexican," uh, he can't be an uh, impartial judge, and so should be should be taken off that case. Um, that comment has been uh, called racist by even some of uh, Trump's fellow Republicans who are supporting him, Paul Ryan, uh, most notably. Uh, so the Democrats wanted to see what McCrory had to say about that because he didn't mention that when when I had asked him about Trump uh, earlier, and when I got in touch with. Uh, McCrory's campaign spokesman, Ricky Diaz, he sent me a statement basically saying, uh, not really addressing the the judge comments, but just saying, you know, look, uh, Mr. Trump does not uh, speak for Governor McCrory, Governor McCrory does not speak for Mr. Trump, uh, Governor McCrory doesn't condone disparaging marks against anybody, including, uh, and this is the, my favorite part of this quote that, that Ricky Diaz sent me, including disparaging remarks against uh, reporters and editorial writers from McClatchy, which of course is the company we all work
4: yeah,
0: for. Yeah, we got a little shout out there. Yeah. Shout Sorry. out to
1: McClatchy.
6: Of course, this is the playbook they always use. I think we'll even see in local races people tying their opponents to uh, to uh, Obama, to Hillary, to Trump. And it's kind of silly. I saw one today that I think you saw also, Colin, on Twitter. What is Obama kindergarten?
1: Yeah, there was some. Uh, some <laughs>
6: Apparently, uh, Roy Cooper supports it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows what that was? But I was. Uh, some uh, journalist down in, in South Carolina politics tweeted this. Uh, campaign mailer that was uh, trying to tie some cam- candidate for office to something he was referring to as Obama kindergarten. So I don't know if that's like Obamacare, but for, for kindergarten education, but uh, we're, we're going to see this sort of tactic all the way through November. Republicans trying to say that whoever the Democratic candidate is, whether they're running for dog catcher or U.S. Senate, that they're you know an extension of Obama and, and Hillary Clinton. Uh, the Democrats are going to say, whoever the Republican is, that they're going to be on a ticket with Trump and that they're going to loyally support whatever Trump does and says.
0: Right, the ticket thing always gets me. The yeah, McCrory, the, the, the
1: Trump-McCarrie agenda is if <laughs> as if Donald Trump and Pat McCrory sit together, <laughs> down together every week and try to figure out what their agenda is going to be.
0: Well, and we also had some members of Congress uh, reacting to uh, the uh, uh, both the comments by Trump about the judge in his Trump University case, but also just in general Trump's uh, comments over the course of the campaign and uh, uh, Brian, you talked to several members of Congress this week. Uh, What did they have to say about Trump? Are they uh, mostly in support of him? Well, I'd say for the most part they're in support
3: in terms of uh, they said they would support the nominee and they are going to support the nominee, similar to what McCrory had to say. And for some people, that's been the extent to their support, just saying that they would endorse whoever became the presumptive nominee. And now that it's Trump, that's still – Is unwavering. Uh, But for the large majority of the people I talked to from the Republican side, um, many of them had said uh, they still have some big concerns uh, with regard to his viability, with regard to his personal ideas. And I think one of the more memorable moments that stood out to me was talking with uh, Representative Mark Walker. Uh, Congressman Walker has been one of just those types of people who said, I'm going to support the nominee and I'll leave it at that. Uh, but after kind of asking a few follow-ups with him, I got some very open and candid responses, which really surprised me uh, because usually from some of these politicians, they've been trained just to kind of repeat themselves. But he elaborated and he said uh, this: the following. He said, and I quote, uh, we're not at a place w- – here where we're jumping for joy that Trump is saying all the right things or leading in a way that we're most proud of right now. Until he's willing to do that, I'm not going to sell out just for sake of jumping on the bandwagon. And there's a lot of people who are jumping on that bandwagon. Well, then he he
0: promptly did, though, (laughs) jump on the bandwagon. He he said he was going to be supportive of Trump, right? Correct. Uh,
3: But he's not going to be as joyous about it or try and – Hide the fact that he's not joyous about it. Uh, But one of the the larger points is that people who have been very vocal Trump supporters have suffered for mostly for redistricting purposes. But if you look at the second and the ninth, Pittenger, he's a Trump delegate going into the convention in July, uh, and he was in a very tight race. Uh, Not that that has much to do with Trump so much as redistricting, but You see that the Trump influence on North Carolina voters and rallying support for candidates that are in allegiance with Trump is very limited. And you saw with Elmer's the a similar fate, where it didn't seem to hurt her, but it didn't really seem to be that much of an advantage to be tied closely with
0: Trump. And we did have kind of a weird moment right before the election where Robert Pittenger claimed that he had an endorsement from Trump, and it seemed that he just had an endorsement from a. Twitter account that uh, was North run Carolina by for Trump. <laughs> run by Trump supporters. Uh, the Trump campaign wouldn't confirm whether or not he had an actual Trump endorsement. Um, well, that's going to do it for uh, campaign. All campaign. All the time. Uh, at Domecast uh, here, but we uh, will be right back to do uh, to talk about our headliners of the week.
3: Your headliner of the week. Who is your
0: headliner of the week? Who is
6: your headliner
0: of the week? Hep,
6: hep, 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 headliner
0: of the week. All right, we're back with Domecast and your favorite Domecast segment, Headliners of the Week. Uh, Brian Anderson, who's your headliner of the week?
3: Well, I, I gotta start with the headline first on this for you. I'm gonna call it Second Degree Burns. Uh, very tight and highly contested second district race, a lot of attacks going back and forth. And uh, there was a lot of drama on the day of that I'm sure Lynn's going to be talking about shortly. But uh, as far as Congresswoman Elmers goes, it wasn't uh, a gracious defeat to say the least. Uh, She said that George Holdings won, uh, but she fears for the people of District 2. So not the typical uh, conceding speech to say the least. And uh that's got to be the headline of the week second degree burns for you jordan
0: all right some second de- second uh, degree burns some sick burns down in harnett county here uh lynn bonner who's your headliner of the week
2: well related to that i'm going to pick uh maggie sandrock a volunteer that um Renee elmer singled out uh while she was leaving the polls um uh, it's rare you see the, a, uh, a campaign volunteer dragged into the spotlight on Election Day, uh, but uh, Maggie Sandrock, who Elmer singled out for her weight um, and who later got a shout-out from George Holding at the end of the day, um, will be my headliner uh, for, her, uh, for her gracious and unexpected turn um, in the spotlight on Election Day.
0: All right. Sick burn and pork barbecue. Uh, Will Dorn, who's your headliner of the week?
4: I'm going with uh, Ted Budd, who is the uh, winner of the massive Republican primary in the 13th district. Um, he uh, he came out of relative obscurity to win that race, as we noted earlier today. And uh, so since a lot of voters are going to get to know a little bit more about him, um, a little bit about Ted Budd, he grew up on a farm in Davie County where he still lives. Um, He is heavily into homeschooling and Second Amendment issues, and he owns Pro Shots, a a shooting range. So that's a little bit about Ted Budd, my headliner of the week. All right. Uh, Coming out
0: of that 17-way race there in the 13th District. Okay. So we've got uh, Second Degree Burns, Maggie Sandrock, and Ted Budd. Craig Jarvis, who's your headliner of the week?
6: Well, any number of characters could come out of the ash veto vignette, but... um As expected, the governor on Monday vetoed this coal ash regulation bill. House and Senate had both uh, passed the bill by overwhelming margins. The House announced they were probably going to take it up on Wednesday. We were all poised for that to happen, override of the veto. It didn't happen, didn't happen, didn't happen. A TV reporter spotted Duke CEO Lynn Good in Senator Berger's office, and that set off a whole round of rumor. Uh, And I think... Senator Berger's office recognized that was a bad optic. It just doesn't, even if the reasons are legitimate, it doesn't look good to be having meetings with Duke Energy while this coal ash issue is going on. So Berger's office issued a statement yesterday, Thursday, saying what the meeting was about. So we could tell Duke that we're not going to over, we're not going to probably override that bill. That we're trying to work out a compromise with the governor that would avoid an override. Anyway, uh, I think it was my nomination as Senator uh, Berger for adding sort of a, a sense of urgency to this. There's people out there who've been getting bottled water for Duke from Duke uh, for over a year now, and so I think there was a sense this is looking bad for all of us. It needs to be resolved in some way that's not going to end up in court. It was a big
0: surprise because uh, this was setting up to be a pretty predictable uh, pass the bill with overwhelming majorities, veto, and then override, but... Uh, um, maybe compromises afoot, and maybe the uh, legislators, the Republican leadership, and uh, Governor McCrory realize that maybe this is not the best time to be uh, squabbling over uh, coal ash and whether people have fresh water to drink. Uh, uh, Colin Campbell, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I'm also going the uh, legislative route with my
1: pick this week, since it was a busy week. To the legislature somewhat overshadowed by the uh, fact that we had an election this week. Um, but I'm going with uh, Representative Paul Skip Stam from Apex. He was the sponsor of a bill that rolled out on Thursday about uh, eugenics victims. Um, Stam uh, wants to do a bill that's uh, I think going to be on the House floor next week um, to allow counties, uh, or at least the four most populous counties in the state, uh, to set up their own. Programs Programs to compensate victims of eugenics uh, who were uh, forcibly sterilized at the hands of uh, county government as opposed to the state. The state has a, a eugenics compensation program uh, that's been in place for several years for folks who were uh, forcibly sterilized at the uh, request of the uh, state uh, board of eugenics, uh, which was picking people who were mentally ill or, or simply poor uh, to be sterilized so that they would not reproduce Um Stam uh, is an interesting person to have in, in front of this because it is sort of a social justice-oriented issue, which you often see uh, Democrats in, in the lead on. Stamm sort of a polarizing figure because he's kind of the legislature's uh, most prominent social conservatives have pushed a lot of very polarizing issues over the years. But this is one where uh, I think he's going to uh, see quite a bit of uh, support for, for what he's trying to do here. So Paul, Skip Stam is uh, my pick this week.
0: All right, Representative Skip Stam, uh, Senator Phil Berger, Ted Budd, Maggie Sandrock, and uh, Second Degree Burns. I'm going to have to go with Ted Budd just because of how he came out of nowhere uh, to probably uh, win his seat in Congress with uh, uh, some help from outside uh, groups. Uh, we'll be learning a lot more of him now that, uh, uh, that he's come out of that 17-way race. Um, so that Ted Budd is the headliner of the week. Uh, that's it for Domecast this week. Uh, email us at dome at newsobserver.com with uh, questions, suggestions, uh, and uh, have a great week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.